Wes found something that I'm going to be using the heck out of potentially. It's YouTube DL web server. It's a web server for downloading YouTube videos. It You fire up a Docker container and you give it a YouTube URL and it's pretty much off to the races. You then are re-hosting your own downloaded instances of the YouTube videos. And I think right now one of the things it does is it re- or transcodes, I guess would be the way to put it. Not re-encode, but it transcodes uh, them to MP3. So then you can download them from a web UI as MP3 files, which kind of be a cool way to convert long videos into like a podcast. You know, and there are things to do this, various sites out there or bookmarklets or just the command line. But if you're like me, you have others in your life who frequently have sources that are YouTube videos. I can't be bothered to FFmpeg them MP3s all the darn time. So here you go. Pop it in that web UI, and you're off to the races. Now, of course, there right now you can't really choose, you know, does it give you the full video? And there's a ton of options. There's dashed videos. There's, you know, YouTube has a lot of downloading options. So hopefully those features show up in a later release. I've got a very, oh, so shameful bash version of this that I have been using. So maybe after the show I can replace it. Yeah, I love YouTube DL, and this just makes it even better and more accessible to friends and family. And Lazy Chris, which... Lazy Chris always appreciates making things a little easier. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 268 for September 25th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's got a studio full of brown bears. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We have a packed show today. Multiple guests stopping by the show, some community news, and something that we don't get to enough. The audience's feedback and emails and questions. We're going to do a little bit of that, too, do some follow-up on some recent topics. And I'll tell you about a new rig that just showed up in the studio. Oh. It's a monster. I haven't told you about it yet. So Yo, I'm excited. I'll tell you in the show. You'll get to find out. So And maybe the most important thing at all, a, a, on top of all this, is after the show, we're going to do an unplugged barbecue. Noah's in town. He's hanging out at the studio. Wes is here. He's brought his pups. We're going to go get Levi. Go get, some, go get some food. There's some meat in the cooker right now. Yeah. This is prep for the big public barbecue we want to do once I'm back up on my feet, feeling better. Got to get it right in before the holidays, so the timing's going to be tricky. So this will be our test run at a big barbecue, a big community barbecue. We'll do a trial. I mean, you want you got to rehearse if you want to get it right. You already got the sous vide going. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, before we get any farther into the show, you know what we got to do. We got to bring in that virtual lug. Time, appropriate greetings, mumble room. Amazing. We have a great... We have a great turnout in there. Uh, Mr. Dar's back. Brent's there, of course. Cassidy from Elementary OS. Longtime contributor Eric is there. Hayden is here from an interesting project we'll be talking about in just a little bit. Mr. Minimac, true contributor to the, I mean, just, Needs no introduction. just here all the time. And returning to the show, Mr. Ryan Sipes. Ryan, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. We got Sean in there and TechMav as well. So we got a big crew today. We're really, we're really looking forward to today's episode. So let's start with the thing that people are sort of the most on edge about this week. We'll just get this out of the way. People are pretty upset that Google seems to be, quote, secretly logging users into Chrome whenever they log into a Google property. So you go into Docs, you go to Gmail. I do that all the time. You go to YouTube. You, well, yeah, right. I mean, what don't they own? <laughs> Starting with Chrome 69, whenever a Chrome user would access a Google-owned site, the browser 
would take that user's Google identity and log the user into the Chrome browser account system. Now, with this revelation, obviously there's a large number of users who are just kind of angry. It feels like a sneaky behind-the-back modification. And you worry that it could allow Google to link your traffic to a specific browser and then to a specific account. And as someone with multiple Google accounts, there's some things I search that, well, maybe not necessarily bad, I don't need on my work account. Right. Well, and Dar in the mumble room today was just talking about on the pre-show about how he's on a machine that's shared by multiple people. So how does that work now when multiple people sit down? Is it bouncing between Google accounts every time you change a Google sign-in? Somebody else sits down, logs into Gmail, and now it's a different account signed into the browser? That's a very good question. Now, there is something we should be clear about here. Um, Google engineers have clarified that this auto-login operation does not start the process of synchronizing local data to Google's servers. That still requires you to explicitly click something. Right, exactly. That That's a big difference. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh sorry, I forgot to call out Alex. Mr. Ironic Badger is also... Sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to skip you. I just... Don't read the screen very well from that far away. You hurt my feelings. I know, you know, and I, we, you and I were just, we're just having a nice chat too. So, well, I'm very glad you're here. It's nice to see you. Alex, of course, was, he was joining us for quite a while after Texas Linux Fest, but then took some time off to travel to the States and move to the States uh, down in uh, Raleigh area. So, And I'm now dealing with establishing a U.S. credit history, which is unbelievably pain in the ass territory. <laughs> oh, welcome. Our sympathy, sir. <laughs> um, then there's another thing that's now brewing today. Uh, Christoph Tavin tweeted out that when you clear all cookies in the new version of Google Chrome, it clears out all cookies except for the Google c- cookies. Um, and to be clear, what it actually seems to do is it wipes out all of the cookies on your file system and then immediately recreates the cookies for Google's properties and repopulates them. Interesting. Now, I did see some defense out there. There's clearly some some privacy implications here that people are rightfully concerned about. I did see some people trying to justify it from the developer side of view, you know, making the argument that, well, users are confused that they're logged into Chrome, but they're not logged into our Google sites and vice versa. And then, well, once you if you are logged into the browser and you do clear your cookies, on the very next request, it's pretty much going to go check and be like, hey, am I signed in? It's going to re-grab those cookies. That's true, yeah. So you can see them being like, well, it's simpler if we just warn them up front that maybe those cookies aren't, are always going to be there. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like uh, in iOS, when you turn on airplane mode now, it, it leaves Bluetooth on to connect to your watch or your AirPods. It's not like true airplane mode anymore. And what that feels like to me is design and product overruling engineering. Like the, the thing that I think the most uh, accurate and cutting criticism about both of these changes is that when asked, Google engineers could not articulate a very clear reason why this change has happened and why it was kind of snuck in, which causes people to lose trust. I think they cannot say what it is because Google hasn't made a public statement about it and generally contracts forbid them to do so. Yeah. So they were limited in what they could legitimately yeah. say. I mean, they are making some suggestions, but they all don't really pass the sniff test. Yeah. I do think you're right. I mean, at this point, Chrome feels a bit more of like a, a Google product that happens to have a browser inside of it and less of like a browser first sort of thing. And it was the good engineering of a lot of Google's products that you know made me switch to Chrome for a long time is it was a great browser initially. That was because of great engineering. Does anyone know, is Chromium also affected by that or only the Chrome proprietary version? Most likely it will be Looks affected. Looks like it is. Page. I'm using Chromium now. Now, but I've also heard a lot of people saying they're using a version of Chromium that avoids all of this. Yeah, too. I think there's some, some patches out there yeah. to remove that. Yeah. 
know that Debian's version actually disables the Google services unless you go there manually and enable them. So. Oh, okay. Only the Debian version or also the Ubuntu version? Is I can't probably... talk for other stuff I don't. I haven't tested. Okay, so. okay. So I have to check that. Now, Cassidy, you point out that this behavior isn't necessarily new for some group of users. Yeah, as far as I know, this is how it's been from day one on Chrome for Android. Like, and it maybe it was a little more forthcoming on Android when you sign in. It says, "Hey, we're also going to sign you into uh, the Chrome browser to sync your bookmarks and everything." So I don't know if people are freaking out about it here on the desktop. Why that's very different from freaking out about it on uh, Android? Hmm. Yeah, I guess it does make it more in line with the Android version. That's an interesting point. It's kind of a weird one. But yeah, we have different conceptions on our different devices, I guess. You know, it, practically speaking, uh, the very first thing I do is I log into the Chrome browser. So this is not necessarily a move that I find personally offensive. I am dumb enough, I guess. I don't know how, what people would label me who think Google is spying on them constantly. But I am willing to risk it, and I use the sync service. I sync my history and my bookmarks because I find that to be a very useful feature of the browser. And it's a good sync system too. So I just have been all in uh, from day one when they turned that on. So I don't I don't really find this to be offensive, but I do understand people that are concerned about it. And it's just good to know, you know, and assess when you do have options out there, which is nice. So, yeah, when you're, uh, you looking, can when you're weighing Firefox versus Chrome, this is another data point. And I think it's an important one. Something else that I found really handy in the past has been Play on Linux. Play on Linux is a wrapper around a series of scripts to make it really easy to install a lot of different Windows applications and use Wine. I've been wondering, where does Play on Linux go now in a post-Proton world? How about that, Wes, as a saying, a, a post-Proton world? I like it. So where, where does Play on Linux go? Um, and it appears that they're making some massive changes. Alpha 1 is out this week along with a Play on Mac build as well. And there has been some big changes. Play on Linux version 5.0 alpha has been completely redesigned, a new user interface, and a new platform they're calling, I guess, Phoenix? Is that, am I saying that right? Phonics? I'm the worst. I'm just the worst. I shouldn't be allowed to speak. The new platform is, quote, decentralized, Git-based, and improves their script engine greatly. The new alpha has support for about 135 different games right now. They're also investigating using virtualization or container technologies to improve the gaming experience, so hey. Hmm, that could be interesting when, if you want to, like, you know, isolate a series of libraries or a specific version of Wine. There's a bottle system now, but that's more at the software layer. So this would be more at the systems layer. Yeah, so something to keep an eye on, playonlinux.com for more. I've, I've used it on and off over the years. I've also used Crossover quite a bit over the years. And now it's like, well, how can these projects, Proton, how can these projects play on Linux and Crossover Office integrate Proton? Yeah, right. Can they further the value add and make it even easier to get some great games on Linux? I suspect there might be a way at least to take some of the upstream improvements that have been in Wine, and uh, we'll probably start seeing those benefits. I'm curious to see where that goes. There's another thing I'm also watching to see where this goes is it sort of seems to me like elementary OS is positioning themselves as a family-safe, family-first distribution. And uh, I started thinking that after I read a post by Cassidy on their Medium blog about App Center and content ratings that are coming in Juno. They say, starting with Juno, Cassidy writes, will display a content warning when a user goes to download an app that meets or exceeds a certain level of the OARS data. Think of that as like nudity, violence, and language content. In addition, 
these apps will not be featured on the App Center homepage as recommended installs. They will remain in the search results and category pages, so if you really want to find them, they're definitely still there. And we should note here that they want to be clear that elementary is not intending to be the content police. They could never make as informed of a decision about what's acceptable as, you know, yourself or a parent of a child. This is just a small step toward more robust content controls and informed consent, as they put it, for their users. So Cassidy, this seems like an interesting differentiating feature of the distribution, sort of making it safe for parents to deploy elementary OS for their kids. And it seems like this could go much deeper than just the App Center, too. Yeah, exactly. And that's the plan. We've we've had parental controls in Loki now for a couple of years. And it's, you know, it's kind of a first uh, first uh, take on the concept where you can set up certain restrictions for apps for a, a managed account. But I think we're looking at these digital wellness features that we've talked about that are coming to like Android and iOS. And we're kind of reconsidering how we could build this feature into the OS itself for both uh, child accounts, but also for people to be able to control what they're comfortable uh, installing or seeing in the OS. Um, I was talking to somebody recently and they said that their friend has PTSD from like combat related trauma. And so that's an example I gave here of, you know, if if you want to prevent yourself from seeing uh, very violent content, you should have the control over your OS to do that. And it's it's always in your hands to uh, to be able to do that. Huh. And Ryan, you also are making the case it's not just for kids. Yeah, I just wanted to pair what Cass said. We actually had a conversation about this uh, the other day. Um, my girlfriend is really careful about this stuff because she was over in Lebanon assisting Syrian refugees and was exposed to a lot of, you know, violence. Mm-hmm. And so it really triggers her to see, you know, really graphic violence. Um, and so I think a lot of people benefit from being able to set what they're comfortable with seeing and um, appearing in front of them on their own machine when they're when they're using it. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that does make that makes a ton of That's sense. That's not an angle we usually think of, right? Like mm-hmm. con- control usually means like I want unrestricted things, but restrictions for yourself. Well, that's still control. It's a new, it's a new idea that we've, we've played with a lot recently, mostly in the mobile context. Like, should I start using the built-in OS features to limit screen time in the evening? In some way, things like Secure Boot are almost analogous. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. We, we have sort of been building this. It's like, uh, I, I don't mind optional controls that I have total authority over that I can choose to put in place or not. Like, that's, that's totally fine in my book. It points out problems in, in human social structures, right? We get a little nervous when we know those controls are there and easy to use, mm. especially when we're not in a situation where we have total control. I also think it's really important that um, we build these tools to put the control in the hands of the users, because if we don't build it in that way, um, I think there's too much of a temptation for people to control it at the service level. For example, if you know we thought, oh, we shouldn't have explicit content in the store, we might restrict all explicit content from the whole app center. And I don't think that's the right way to go. Ah, I see what you're saying is it also makes room for the other way. So there can be content that is explicit, but there is an easy way for people to opt out of it. Right. So it does, that's, a, that's a great point. So Cassidy, I guess this is one of many new things that are coming to Juno, and we're kind of going to see this in the early stages, it sounds like, with Juno. It'll be specific to the App Center in Juno, but then in future releases expanding from there? Yeah, the idea is kind of this tiered progression. Um, At first, we're doing this kind of minimum viable. It's just a warning that says, hey, here's a heads up. 
um, according to the data in the app that it has some explicit content. But after that, I think, yeah, we're going to look at really building in both on the in-app center itself, listing out what actual uh, ORS tags are there. And so what, you know, whether it's explicit due to violence or nudity or language. Um, and then after that, yeah, in the future is, is more system-wide controls. So you can, you know, this could theoretically apply to your video uh, player or your music app as well. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. And I think, like I said at the beginning, it's a good differentiator. I I, uh, I have found elementary OS to be a fantastic OS for my son. It's been on his laptop now for a couple of years at least. Just super solid. So I, I really like this. Um, and I, I plan to, you know, just keep him on elementary OS because it just worked out perfectly. So great, Cassie. Well, thanks for coming on and explaining that. And yeah, no man, am I looking forward to seeing Junoland. It's got to be getting oh, close. Oh. You guys must be in like the big final push, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's coming. It's sure coming. I, I will say I've been working on the, um, the big release announcement post, you mm. know, cause there are certain things we know are obviously in, in this release and yeah. we can start taking some screenshots and things. But and, you are in that phase. Oh, You're in that doozy. phase. Yep. It's like a 20 minute read right now. Um, <laughs> wow. so it's intense. There's a lot of new stuff, a lot of great stuff. Wow. Congratulations. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Speaking of other new stuff, uh, we've been covering the development of Pipewire, which has recently had a couple of large growth spurts when it was adopted to provide remote desktop access to Gnome Shell and now to also the Plasma desktop for Wayland. Oh, this was always the big question: is you know, I love I love X11's network capabilities. Wayland has nothing. How are we going to achieve this? And Pipewire is a backend. Um, plumbing system, I guess, for, uh, for, for video right now. But that's about to change. Pipewire is going to also provide audio support. And that work has started to be formed. There is pretty much everything in place they need for video, even including patches for Firefox and Chromium, which are in the development stages right now. So the video part being pretty well solved, and at least at a near 1.0, the Pipewire creator himself, Wim Tamus, and the Pulse Audio developer, Core Pulse Audio developer, and a few others are getting together at a Hackfest this fall to start the core work on building what they're calling a production audio pipeline for Linux. That's what that work is going to start um, at the end of October. And they're traveling to Edinburgh, and they're all going to get together. And uh, I think this is a massive, massive moment because macOS has a very competitive audio subsystem, like core audio is what they call it. And Linux has gotten pretty good with Pulse Audio and Jack. In fact, we use it extensively in production and are pretty happy with it these days. But I wouldn't say it's a cohesive API that you can easily write to, like core audio is. Right. I mean, you, you have different use cases that are segregated, and a lot of your users will end up having to install different software and learn how to configure it if they have a new use case. So Christian here is blogging on one of the GNOME blogs that I got off the GNOME uh, Planet feed, and he writes that he's feeling very optimistic that we can come out of this event with both a plan for what we want to do and the right people involved to make it happen. The idea is we can have a shared infrastructure for consumer-level audio and pro-level audio under Linux. It really excites me, he writes, and I do believe that if we do this right, Linux will take a huge step forward as a natural home for pro-audio desktop users. Amazing. I'm, that is really exciting. Now, of course, it's really, it's, it's just early days. That's, that's where it's at. We do have good audio solutions, but this is what we need. We have had missing abstractions, and I think that's what this is showing. 
And something to keep in mind is this solves the issue of a proper way of providing audio and video hardware access for, for sandboxed applications, which we're going to start seeing more and more with flat packs and snaps and Wayland applications. This is going to be pretty nice. Secondarily, it provides a unified solution for user space and pro audio, which means pro audio users will no longer have to read all these crazy how-tos and guides to get Jack going on their system, which is what Wes and I are doing Amen. right now. Uh, it, it will just be all be programmatically uh, achievable. And third, it provides a video equivalent of Pulse Audio, which makes dealing with different cameras, screen capture, uh, and a lot of other things, including doing all that under Wayland, possible. So that's what Pipewire is bringing, is a unified audio and video subsystem that works across sandbox applications, works with Wayland, and gives an API for developers to build towards. It's a pretty big deal. I don't want to crap on the initiative, but it sounds like, hey, we have too many standards. Let's make a standard to fix all the standards <laughs> into one standard. <laughs> and lay it on top of all the other existing things. Yeah, there is that definite potential. But the thing that seems encouraging to me is this is involving people from the KDE project. This is involving the core Pulse Audio developer uh, which I always mess up his name, but I came, I became a patron of him. Leonard Pottering? No, no, was no. The it's, original one? No, it's now run by Arun. Uh, I can't, I can't even, I don't know, I can't even take a stab at his last name. But uh, he's on Patreon, and he's now the core developer of Pulse Audio, and they're coming in together. If it's going to work, this is the right group of people. Yeah, they have the the right heads in the room trying to build a coalition here, uh, lay good foundations. It'll probably be a long time, just like just like Wayland was before we really see it in a desktop OS yeah. near us. But yeah, and maybe a long time before it's totally feature rich too, right? It's going to be probably a minimum viable product for a while, and then they'll build on top of it. So, you and I will probably be writing out Pulse Audio and Jack for a, probably another year or two. Ooh. Um, well, we'll be early testers, I can yeah, assure you. Oh, oh, guarantee that. Guarantee that. I, I, I still am just, I don't know. Jack is, the vernacular is rough. It's just different. It's different. But in a year or two, Microsoft will finally have a Linux distro. Come on. <laughs> you, Dar, Dar, you just, you never let it go. Hey, it's three years have passed. Two are missing. I said five years. Come on. I, that's true. I know, I know. I mean, like, we can't fault you there. It still could happen. I, I give you that. In the meantime, um, I can't believe this new rig that has come into the studio, shipped to us by Dell for review. It is the Dell Precision 5530, and it is a 15-inch screen, infinity-edged-edge -edge screen in a 14-inch chassis. Oh. And you can get it with Xeon processors if you want. You can get it with 32 gigs of RAM. I'll, I'll save the spec of ours uh, for the review next week. But it just arrived in the studio today, so I'm going to be loading it up. It has Ubuntu 16.04 installed from the factory. That looks like an XPS. It does. It looks. It looks exactly like an XPS 13, only a little bit bigger. Well, because it, it's it's a 14 inch chassis uh, and a little bit thicker. But for that, you get a competent cooling system, which I'll be testing, and uh, uh, you know, way more, way more horsepower. The uh, desktop replacement version of the XPS you've always wanted. Yeah, and it's you know, it's it's you can get. I mean, you can get crazy fast processors in this thing. It's got the infamous i9 as an option. I yeah. see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Can that thing really dissipate the heat? Is it really That's, capable of that? I've got the. I'll t I'll give you a little spoiler. I've got the i9 version that that turbos up to 4.8 gigahertz, and I'm going to be testing that very thing. <laughs> Don't take it across the border to that crazy Canadian that drops IMAX all the time, though. Will yeah, you? I know, right? I know. I'm pretty excited. Which Dell? Are you referring to? Well, hello, Mr. Wimpress. The Precision 5530, their 15-inch yeah. mobile workstation, just got just arrived here at the studio. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Very interesting. Can you hurry up on that? Because um, <laughs> I've got Bitcoin burning a hole in my wallet and I'm about to, you know, slam down on a new laptop and it's either going to be that or the uh, 7350, the new one. <laughs> Or the ThinkPad X1 Carbon Extreme. Oh Ooh. man, you really Get are running ThinkPad. I love ThinkPads. So I'm I'm seriously considering a return to ThinkPads, having been a ThinkPad user for many many years prior to you know the whole Dell XPS thing. So yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say, Chris, because literally I've got them in a spreadsheet side by side and there's only a few things the splitting hairs between them wow you've even assembled a spreadsheet for this you're telling me oh yeah <laughs> I, I, I I need to work out exactly how many one Bitcoin I'm gonna spend on each of these laptops <laughs> oh that's you know I, I I I completely understand where you're at because it's like if you feel like you've got a limited amount of time right now with the Bitcoin too it's like now's the time to now's the time to pull the trigger this time last year could have bought all of those laptops oh. and had change out of one one Bitcoin. And this time this year, it's like spec those to the max for one Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I'll be trying it out uh, starting now, even though I just got a brand new laptop. This would be like, this could have been me in the future if I'd stayed into editing and I was doing video editing or I was doing a lot of audio editing under Linux. Yeah. This like could, demanding Linux workload. Perfect. This could have been in my future. So I'll give it a review. I'll load it up. I'll put it through its paces. It's got a brilliant 4K display. So I'll get in a good taste of that. And I'll give you my full report uh, in the next episode of Unplugged. So hopefully then, Mr. Wimpy, you can make your choice. I will wait for one week and one week only. <laughs> All right. Well, I had a great chance to chat with Nate Graham. And if that name rings a bell, it's because he's pretty involved with the Plasma Project. And he is the individual who's been posting weekly usability updates about Plasma that really showcases all of the goodies that are coming to the Plasma desktop. And it's the kind of things that have gotten me really hyped about Plasma and make me want to keep using it and keep trying out the next the next version, the next version, which actually ultimately maybe end up choosing Neon again. And so I had a chance to chat with, chat with Nate about the history of his mission to make Plasma more usable and also funding of that type of work. I've been wanting to get Nate Graham on the show for a while, and this week we had an opening, and I emailed him late last night, and he took me up on the chance to come on the show and talk about some of the work that he's been doing with Plasma, and I love this, Nate, your self-described mission to make KDE Plasma the best and most widely used computer operating system interface on the planet Earth. <laughs> That's a great mission. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So uh, how are you accomplishing this this mission? I, I've noticed um, what really caught my attention was you seem to have a big focus on polishing the usability rough edges of Plasma. In fact, it seems like this is something that's been kicking around in your head since 2017 at least. I saw a, a, a post uh, where you're proposing improving usability. And then in, in September of 2017, there was a post of KDE's goals for 2018. And in there was a piece from you advocating for usability improvements. What's, what's behind this mission? That's right. So um, it looks like you did a pretty good job of summarizing the history. I'll just fill in a couple of details. Please do. So uh, back in, in late 2017, the uh, uh, KDE leadership basically asked the community, hey, what do you think we should focus on for the next couple of years? And I was a relatively new member at the time. I had done really hardly anything, but I thought, why not? You know, here's what I think 
we need, and I'm just going to put it out there. So I proposed my usability and productivity goal, and uh, to my pleasant surprise, it seemed to have resonated, and, and people liked that, and it was chosen as a formal goal. So after that, you know, a month or two passed, and uh, not much really happened, and I realized if this was actually going to get done, I had to take the initiative on it, you mm. know, because I was the one who proposed it. Nobody else was really going to going to do it before me. And and I'd never really done anything like this before. But I said, you know what, let's give it a try. I'm going to see what happens. And I decided to just start making lists. I made a list of things that I thought we needed. And uh, I decided to start kind of poking people to see if if I could get other people interested in it. And I started submitting some patches myself. And then as as this went on and things actually started to happen, I thought, hey, maybe people out there in the community might want to know what's going on. So I decided to start a blog about it after several other people urged me to. And, uh, well, we've pretty much been going from there for, for about, I would say, since like January of this year. Right. And uh, now you're there's 30 no stopping me. I'm going to keep going forever. <laughs> Good. And now you're 37 editions in. Uh, and I know. each one whets my appetite for the next release of Plasma. That's really like the net effect it's having here is it, this. I know. Isn't it amazing stuff? Me too. When I'm yeah. putting this together, I'm always thinking, holy crap, this is amazing stuff. Yeah. I just cannot believe how amazing KDE contributors are. I mean, for example, right before we uh, started doing this interview, I got an email notification about a patch that somebody submitted to fix a bug that was filed yesterday. Oh. So, you know, so that's that kind of thing is amazing. And I feel like I'm seeing more and more of this as more people get interested and, and excited. And it's just an awesome thing to see. Now, are you still pretty heavily involved with the Kubuntu project as well? Yes, I am. Kubuntu is actually my home distro. It's the one that I'm talking to you on right now. And uh, I personally feel that Kubuntu is a really great choice for KDE made sort of accessible for the average person. Um, our rolling release distros are fantastic, and rolling release distros are in many ways the best way to get all of these usability and productivity upgrades that I blog about all the time. But for ordinary, regular people who just kind of want to get stuff done, I think nothing beats the stability of a discrete release distro. And I think it's really important that Kubuntu provide that experience with a really high level of polish and integration so that it can kind of become the de facto KDE distro, in my opinion. I think that's fantastic. You know, when I think about when I think about deploying Plasma at like a workplace, an office environment, I think Kubuntu is so. Uh, here in our studio, for example, all of our production machines are on Kubuntu eighteen oh four, and it has just oh, been, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's fantastic news. Rock solid, rock solid. Best, really, awesome. it's the best distro I think we've ever used in production. Um, now, on my personal machine, I got to admit, I, I I roll KDE Neon, but that's just because of really it's your fault, Nate, because you get me excited about <laughs> stuff. So that's actually totally on you. Uh, now, you know, sometimes I actually tempt myself to use it. Um, there, there are many I times I, I feel like, I, there are many times when I feel like, oh man, I want to actually use some of these these improvements myself, for, particularly to the input stack, which has gotten a lot of improvements in uh, Plasma. Um, uh, 513 uh, and 514 and uh, I'm stuck on 5.12 and I'm kind of chomping at the bit right, to do it. But, right. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of feel like if I don't eat my own dog food, it's it's a pretty shameful thing. So I'm, I'm going to definitely keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's always ways like VMs and Docker containers and whatnot. To and in fact, that's what I do. I actually do all my development inside a KDE Neon VM with everything built from, from source. Oh. And I think KDE Neon is basically a near perfect 
uh, development tool in that respect. It's it involve it gives you great isolation from your host system, and it lets you make all kinds of changes without worrying about blowing stuff up. You get everything that's KDE related pretty much rolling. So I mean, it's just great. I love developing in KDE Neon. That's fantastic. I love hearing that. That's so great, and uh, that means there's room for all types of uh, KDE plasma powered uh, distros or meta distros. Don't call it a distro. Now I noticed too <laughs> in the bio, I was reading your Patreon page, which I want to talk about in a moment. Uh, a former Apple engineer. Does that does that change? You think the the look you have when you come in and look at the plasma desktop? Did that influence the way you view visibility as a former Apple engineer? In fact, that was the core reason. Um, in addition to being a former Apple engineer, I had been a, an Apple fan for pretty much my entire life, starting at age six. And uh, I think that the work that I did at Apple gave me a really great opportunity to see how really focused development teams work to produce software that's of you know high technical quality, but also exceptionally high usability. Apple has that reputation in the world. And I feel like for the most part, it's justified. And uh, when I left Apple in late 2016, I decided that I just wanted to start working on Linux full time. And I kind of bounced around for a little bit. I started with GNOME. And what I was that draw? What was the draw to Linux there? I mean, especially coming from a, you know, a long history with Apple, what drew you to Linux there, do you think? Well, it's that's a really good question. There were, there were a number of things. Um, I started to feel like open source, just as a movement, made a lot of sense for me. And um, the, the, I started to feel like the inherent problem with closed source software is that regular people don't have much of an impact on it unless they're on the inside. And a lot of my friends and family had gotten in the habit of telling me their favorite Apple bugs and, you know, file this bug for me, see if you can get this fixed. And for a while I was actually doing that and I felt like that was really good. But after a while I started to take a longer view and it was like, well, what is this like for people who don't have a person on the inside? You know, how is how are they going to get their their pet issues resolved? Because despite the fact that Apple products offer exceptionally high usability, nothing's perfect, right? And people are going to find bugs in any software. And if you don't happen to have somebody on the inside, you don't really have that many options when it right. comes to closed source software. Absolutely. And I just the more I learned about the open source movement, the more I just sort of liked the idea of participatory software development and an open attitude and the opportunity for anybody to contribute and not only to contribute, but to go through a pipeline of, of starting as a user and then becoming uh, a connected user who's engaging with developers and then eventually morphing into a developer themselves. And that was exactly my path. When I started with all this stuff, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you I was not a programmer, and I'm still not that much of a programmer today. I'm, I'm a build and release engineer by trade, so I can do some scripting, but being able to learn how to do software development from the KDE community has been absolutely tremendous. And, you know, I feel like if if somebody as dumb as I can do it, anybody can do it, really. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like you have gotten your hands on all kinds of different apps. It looks like, I mean, just reading over some of your profile, there's a lot of areas you've touched now recently. Um, and I, I think... I think that's where the Patreon thing is sort of a fascinating opportunity for open source developers. I'd like to get your thoughts on this because it seems to me, so right now you've got, uh, as we record, 81 patrons. Proudly, mm -hmm. proudly, I'm saying I'm one of them. And I think it's a great idea because if that were to grow, 
you could proportionately dedicate more of your time to, to learning what you need to learn to help more, to triage more bugs, to touch That's more right. projects. So what are your thoughts on using Patreon as a funding platform, even in 2018, where there seems to be some Patreon fatigue, people are not as willing as they might have been back in 2017 or 2016, but it still seems like a great opportunity. I don't have a lot of uh, experience with the cultural side, so it's uh, news to me that people have Patreon fatigue. So, you know, if, if that's the case, that's that's a little bit unfortunate. But I feel like this can be a really great supplement, but ultimately, that's all it really can be is, is as a supplement. Software development is an incredibly challenging and difficult field. And out there in the private sector, people routinely make six figures doing this. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with, with some private sector experience, we've all known people who bring home fat paychecks without actually doing all that much. And you compare and contrast that with so many people in the open source community who are just being absolute rock stars and getting paid nothing or, or very little for it. So I think Patreon is fantastic. And I, I also have several other ones set up. I've got LibraPay. I've got I've got PayPal as well, but I think the best funding model is for is what essentially the Creta people are doing. They have a foundation, the Creta Foundation, and they aggregate donations and they actually use this to formally pay developers with actual real salaries. Uh, I believe the Linux Mint people have done this too, and in my personal opinion, this is really the only the only payment and funding model that makes sustainable long term sense. Which hmm. is that if if you want if you want developers, you're pretty much going to need to pay developers. And if you're not going to pay developers, what you're going to get are interested, passionate volunteers, which are fantastic, but it's a hit and miss proposition. And even the most interested volunteer will eventually go through stages of their life where they're not going to have time for it anymore if they're not paid. I mean, now that I've been doing this for, for a little while, not anywhere near as long as many people in the KDE community, I've noticed that people who are really passionate at first often just drop out after a couple of months, not because they're bored of it or they don't want to do it anymore, but because they got married, they started having kids, they got a new job that requires them to commute and they can't be in front of a computer all day, that sort of thing. And those so, are the generous scenarios. There can be other reasons too. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Many other reasons. You know. And so relying on volunteers is an inherently fragile proposition and it relies on having existing members being willing to constantly train and retrain new people as they come in and leave and come in and leave. I think if there was a, a dedicated core of, of paid developers, you could see that they develop a real culture of a, a sort of self-sustaining culture where other people help, help out as well and the knowledge becomes distributed and you don't see so much churn. They're actually, that sort of happens right now in the KDE community with Blue Systems. Blue Systems sponsors a whole bunch of Plasma developers. They're all paid, they work, they do it all the time. And that's one of the reasons why the quality of Plasma is now so high and constantly getting better. And these guys aren't just working on Plasma, they're working on frameworks, they're working on apps, they're doing all kinds of stuff. You know, So I think that's the sort of payment paid development model that we need to try to make happen everywhere else. It does take some admin, but I could completely see what you're saying, how it's more sustainable and it's more like a real job to the developers involved. It takes a large funding initiative and a foundation, uh, you know, to admin all of that. But it, if, you know, major projects right. like KDE seem like a good size project for something like that and others as well. That's a fascinating yeah. idea. So Patreon in a way is sort of a, not a stopgap, but it's... Um, it's an intermediary solution where direct consumers of the product can still try to help fund the development until something a larger solution comes along, perhaps. 
That's exactly how I see it. You just phrased it perfectly with about a thousand times fewer words than I did. <laughs> well, Nate, I really appreciate all of the work you've been doing. I will link to your blog. If folks haven't seen that yet, linuxunplugged.com slash 268. We'll have a link in there to Nate's usability posts. Also, you can go to planet.kde.org if you want to see some of the other developers' posts uh, to their blogs. It's a great aggregator of all of that stuff. And we will have a link to Nate's Patreon, which is... Uh, and Graham, right? It's Ngram, patreon.com slash Ngram. Yeah, if you want to just go there directly, but we'll have a link in the show notes. Nate, thanks so much for coming on the show and stay in touch. Uh, I'd love to chat again in the future. Thanks so much, Chris. It was fantastic. I had a great time. He had some really interesting ideas around how to fund long-term, sustainably large open source projects. And I thought that was a particularly new and good insight on, on, a, on a potential uh, solution there. And, you know, it's it's sort of interesting timing, too, because it's lining up right with uh, a new venture that's launching that I want to tell you about in just a moment. But I just want to say thank you to Nate. He also is uh, stopped by the live show. So he's chatting away with folks in the chat room, which is awesome. Just so great. It's incredibly exciting to have someone like that, you know, with the commercial experience he's got with Apple coming into the open source community and, and bashing on something like KDE. You know, it's, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I think the posts uh, do a lot for encouraging people to check out and stay tuned into what Plasma Desktop is doing. Just in a in a sort of um, I don't know, it's not like a tease, but it's a bit of you get you get you're able to appreciate all of the work that's going into it. That's probably what I'm trying to say. Like we were just talking with Cassidy about how so much stuff is going into Juno that he's struggling to even write up all to, to outline it all. But it, this way, this weekly, this weekly approach that Nate's taken gives you the space to sort of uh, enjoy some of the finer, smaller little things like n new icons and when you right-click in the menu and things that are nice to know about but would otherwise get lost in the much larger noise around a new release. And so it, it helps build appreciation for all of the work that these people are contributing to a project. And it creates hype. And I think it's in part responsible for, as Wimpy puts it, the ascendancy we're seeing of the Plasma desktop right now. And then it's got people like us going on a podcast and talking about it, which, you know, amplifies the hype a bit. And we're using it in production. We're using it in real life. Yeah, it seems like it's, it's, it's a good position, right? They've got a great community going. They've got active users. And their software these days is just great. Mm-hmm. I keep getting a steady stream of, you know, one or two, at least a week. And this is, you know, months after we did our Plasma episode of people saying, all right, I'm trying it. I'm taking the Plasma challenge and I'm really liking it. I'm still getting that. I'm still using it over here. Um, I did have, I've been using it for about three months every day. I had my first lockup today. <laughs> but other than that, it's been fantastic. Really, really fantastic. <laughs> it could have made it one more day and then that wouldn't have gone out on there. <laughs> yeah, go. you know, that's how it always works. Well, it's better than no. Yeah, well, I, I suppose so. It does last a little bit longer. So the conversation there at the end was kind of about funding and what's a sustainable approach for somebody who's making a nice contribution doesn't even need to be their primary revenue source of course that'd be great but you know just as like a secondary to, 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 to really justify the time investment well a new startup called Tidelift hopes to help these developers achieve just that and get paid with a business model the company compares to Netflix so Tidelift is a startup right now it just got 30 million in funding uh, at least I think and uh, the idea is that a company pays a subscription to Tidelift which then takes a cut and then distributes the remainder to open source projects. Uh, and the subscribers, you know, will in exchange 
get assurances that the software will be properly maintained, quote-unquote. Yeah, so customers pay Tidelift, and then their, their pitch here is developers can focus on code instead of sales and marketing, getting their income from Tidelift. And then when a customer signs up for Tidelift, they go analyze your code base, go see all the neat open source projects you're using, and then bill you based on funding each of those projects. Right. Do they contribute any of that work back upstream? Or is it, you know, you pay for it, you get to keep all that work? Or? Well, no, the, the idea is you're, you're paying an open source developer's time. So they look at how many open source projects right. your company is dependent on. Tidelift then says, all right, your fee is X because of the amount of projects that you use. You, you cut that check to Tidelift. They then go engage with the open source developer and say, we can pay you X a month if you will then commit to maintaining the software for X period of time and to also keep Tidelift and our customers informed of major changes. And then they then Tidelift goes back to the subscriber, the customer, and says, all right, here's the pledge by the open source developer to maintain these super important projects that you depend on. That's kind of the idea, right? Have they got any track history in how much they're paying developers for their commitment to these projects. Yeah, that has been the very thing that Wired tried to get from them, and they didn't really have much to offer there. They've made a couple of blog posts about developers that they've got brought in on the team, but they haven't really been clear on the amount of money that developers get. They say, so, okay, here's the numbers. They got $15 million in venture capital. Sorry, it's not 30 And they announced last week that they set aside a million of that $15 million for new developers that join the program, and the developers will be paid at least $10,000 over a two-year period, at least. That's all they've said publicly in terms of funding. $5,000 a year. Yeah. Between I'm hundreds of people. It's not even a cup of tea. Here's the other big problem with this. That's just called a consultancy company. And of course, I can see why investors would put money into it. If they acquire the developer base, of course, they will be a powerful consultancy company because there is a brain shortage of skilled developers. So eventually they would be able. And what are the conditions for the developers? To be tied into them? Because otherwise, I don't see them making money long term anyways. It seems to me this is a middleman in a business negotiation with open source developers that doesn't need to be there. And exactly. if companies are serious about engaging with a project that they're dependent on, just go and contact. It's very easy to find the uh, the key people behind a project or a foundation or whatever. Just find those people, approach them directly, and that's probably the best way to invest your money behind a technology that you're dependent upon. And more foundations on the open source side would help, I think. I think the other thing to consider here is the pitch. I that's, This is what raises a red flag for me. Uh, Netflix for open source, that just that just makes my skin crawl. What does that even mean? And Well, that's a pitch for investors. That's not for the developer side of things. Come on. Uh, I wonder how Netflix feel about their brand being associated with this as well. <laughs> we shall see. I thought that was interesting, though. It's another crack at this. Um, and I don't know. I think Nate's idea is a better one. And and then Wimpy's right. Then Then companies could just interface with that foundation, and there would be an established process for that. It does seem like the better the better solution. So let's talk about something new that's getting some attention. A Linux distro that's optimized for the Windows subsystem for Linux. It's based on Debian. And the core developer, Hayden, is joining us today. 
Hayden, welcome to Linux Unplugged. Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, Hayden. It's good to have you here. So you had a chance to chat with Joe Resington, my co-host, and Wes's co-host, who's been filling in for me on Linux Action News, uh, to answer a few questions so that way Joe could accurately cover the story in LAN. And I, he he recorded that chat so we, we could add, refer to it for notes, and I thought it was so great that I would just play it here. It's it's a bit rough, but it was a great deep dive into why W Linux has been created and why the Windows subsystem for Linux might need a distro that's built specifically for it. Thanks for joining me, Hayden. Thanks for having me, Joe. So you're here to talk about W Linux. What exactly is that then? W Linux is a Debian derivative that is designed to function on Windows subsystem for Linux. Uh, it is a distro that is customized for that environment. And so this is based on Debian then? Yes, this is a uh, derivative of Debian Stretch with a handful of packages from the Debian testing branch uh, that have been brought down, mostly Python and other dev tools that uh, have a more updated version in the testing branch that are fairly stable. And so what makes this different from the version of Debian that's all already available in the subsystem? So a free distro Debian is already available. Uh, and if you're first you know, getting into WSL, uh, which is short for Windows Subsystem for Linux, you might want to give it a shot. Uh, but WLinux uh, has a lot of uh, customizations and additional packages that make working uh, in this kind of hybrid environment a little bit easier between Windows and between Linux at the same time. So one of the big differences is no systemd then. Why is that? Well, part of that is because systemd doesn't work well uh, on Windows Subsystem for Linux. Um, so it was kind of a, a no-brainer to pull out. Um, I'm a big fan of the Devuin project and, uh, you know, appreciate uh, in it freedom uh, from, you know, Unix philosophy standpoint. Um, but mostly it was just taking up space uh, on WLinux, so we took it out. Uh, SysV is there. Uh, if you install... Um, some programs uh, that have a hard systemd dependency, it, the uh, libsystemd will come in. Um, but it was mostly just a matter of size. Okay, but why didn't you just go with Dev1 then? Because isn't that just Debian with no systemd? I did do testing with Dev1. Um, it added some more complexity uh, to the build process um, with no apparent uh, user, no improvement to the user. Um, and kind of being a Unixy guy, believing in Unix principles, I mean, I didn't see needlessly interjecting complexity um, for something that we can actually just do on the Debian uh, from the Debian sources uh, ourselves. Also, um, you know, we do know that people might want to bring in packages, uh, you know, from upstream uh, GNOME and KDE to run those apps on Windows. And if we had uh, a hard block on systemd, um, they wouldn't be able to run the most recent version of those. Okay, that makes sense. So talking of GUI stuff, I mean, the subsystem is not supposed to be for GUI applications, but you've made it easy to run um, Google Chrome and Visual Studio and other GUI stuff. What's all that about? So this isn't an officially supported feature um, of WSL, but it is available. Uh, and there's a few tweaks uh, we do to make that work with an external X client. Um, there's a few, there's a couple free ones available. My favorite is X410. It's uh, available in the Microsoft Store for five dollars, 
And we just made some tweaks so that the, uh, for example, the libgl uh, is rendered um, on the Windows side where you can get some more acceleration uh, out of those apps. And it's very functional. In fact, there are people, although I don't recommend it, who do boot WSL uh, into a full-fledged uh, XFCE, uh, KDE, or GNOME desktop. Um, you know, sometimes in a separate window, like you would a virtual machine, uh, and sometimes right next to their Windows uh, apps on the same screen. People are doing interesting things with this. I heard about Flatpaks up and running on WSL this week. Um, presumably they work reasonably well. And what about Snaps as well? So far, Snaps, uh, you know, are a little bit of a challenge. Uh, Flatpaks are working better. Um, so we'll, um, we'll see where that goes. Uh, Snap has some dependencies that we have to work through, see if we can't make those work. I thought the chat that Joe and Hayden had was fantastic. In fact, it, go, it went on for quite a bit, but I, I wanted to take a moment and bring Hayden in live since he's here and uh, chat about W Linux a bit with him. And I wanted to maybe double down before we've gone too far on some of the issues with systemd under uh, the Windows subsystem for Linux. I, I have never really spent much time with the Windows subsystem for Linux, Hayden, but uh, looking at bug reports, it seems that the WSL has its own process that it wants to run at PID1. Is that one of the issues with systemd on WSL? The issue with systemd on WSL is that it's not meant uh, at this point to run servers. It's not meant to run uh, ongoing processes that you access from the background. That may change in the future uh, as Microsoft just announced uh, Windows Server 2019 with WSL as a feature. Uh, so that may change, and we may see, you know, more uh, more growth on that use of WSL to run Linux uh, processes. We'll see where it goes. I found it, I found it uh, really interesting the uh, some of the work you've put into running the graphical like applications like Chrome. I think I just I recently saw I can't remember where you were you're talking about f fixing an issue with Chromium uh, from running it from W Linux. Uh, which I think is great because I've been, that's one an area I've been really curious. Like if I was ever to play around with WSL, I would love to do that. In regards to the snap issue you ran into, uh, I, I invite you to chat with uh, Mr. Martin Wimpress here in our, our virtual lug. He uh, could probably help with any issues there because he's working on that at Canonical. Uh, I guess probably snap must be dependent on something that's not in W Linux now. Yeah, well, the, the main thing is is the, the dependency on systemd support, but we ah. do have a shim that can work around that, which is how we delivered uh, Snap support in 14.04, which was uh, built upon Upstart. So, uh, Hayden, um, I'm Martin Wimpress. I work, <laughs> I work on the Snapcraft team. Um, find me uh, on Twitter at M under, underscore Wimpress, and uh, I'll be happy to help. Absolutely, I will do that because uh, I want to work with you on that. Uh, Flatpaks as well. Um, yeah, we're testing an issue right now with Google Chrome, the latest version, 69. Uh, we're working through some LibGL acceleration issues. Uh, we have an open issue on the GitHub, and we're, we're troubleshooting that. Uh, as far as we know, it uh, affects most uh, of the WSL distros available. Uh, but, you know, we're the ones actually doing the investigation, you know, pulling logs, uh, you know, seeing how we can fix this for WSL users. Yeah, it seems like that could be an interesting um, impact that, that your distribution could have is by by really focusing in on this like no other distribution is, you're going to push up against these edge cases uh, that could drive future improvements to the subsystem. So I think that's great. And I wonder, 
if it's also going to be revenue sustainable potentially because I noticed it, you're selling it for uh, $19.99. It's on sale right now uh, for $9.99, and that's in the Microsoft Store, which is, of course, the way you get it into the subsystem for Linux. Uh, do you think this might be at some point revenue sustainable? So that's our long-term goal. And, you know, we've talked a lot about different sustainability models for open source projects in this episode. And I think what we need to realize is that people have been paying for Linux on a commercial and enterprise level for a long time. And sure. that's been sponsoring a lot of the innovations we all enjoy in community distros. So what I see is a democratization of that process with Krita, with elementary OS, uh, with other projects. Uh, not so much the one you mentioned in the interim, <laughs> but uh, where the users, uh, the open source users themselves are being entrepreneurial, uh, you know, taking ownership of these, pushing them along and commercializing them uh, so that you can, you know, push these uh, developments out to other people. You know, another yeah. yep. good example of this is Codeweavers, uh, who's worked on Crossover and, you know, have worked with uh, Valve on Proton. So, uh, you know, there's always, uh, you know, an angle sometimes to commercialize these and, and we give back. One of the examples is uh, we already identified a package that's just not available anywhere as an app uh, uh, in an app repo and we're hosting it. So you're welcome to use our app repo, uh, you know, in any existing Debian or Ubuntu distro uh, to install that package. Huh. I noticed also that you mentioned one of the features is faster patching than other upstream distributions for subsystem-specific bugs, and that you're specifically monitoring subsystem-related CVEs. Is, are, is that delivered through that repo as well, those fixes? So the fixes aren't delivered through the repo. The repo is currently simply delivering uh, packages and package updates to our custom packages. We are in the process of rolling out a new uh, onboarding uh, experience for users. We had so many requests for packages, uh, it simply was not possible to ship everyone's editor and everyone's uh, tools in one. So we're going to uh, create a front end where you can go through when you launch WLinux the first time, you know, and specify, I'm a Python developer, install all my Python, you know, I, I want to use NeoVim uh, or code uh, you know, and we will take care of that for you. And then um, we're going to build auto updating to that going forward so that everyone, regardless of whether you're building it off the, uh, the GitHub or downloading it from the store, will always have the latest availability to the features. Yeah, um, so yeah. there won't be a gap there. Uh, so uh, one example of this was a problem in a relatively, so WSL doesn't implement uh, IP tables. Uh, yet or very well at all uh, and um, there was a package uh, in Ubuntu that broke uh, called EB tables uh, and it's an obscure package and it did something in the install script uh, that broke uh, apt and basically prevented everyone on Ubuntu 18.04 on WSL from updating for a few weeks well we worked you know and I give credit to Ubuntu for you know helping us get that fixed but it took a few weeks you know, and we could have pushed that out in a day or two. 
Yeah. And again, I think that's going to be one of the great side contributions or direct contributions really of the project existing is pushing on those edges. Well, uh, Hayden, thank you for taking the time to chat with me and for chatting with Joe uh, to get the, to get the coverage right on Linux Action News. I, I'll put links to a bunch of information about the project as well as the Microsoft Store link because like I mentioned, it is on sale for 50% off right now if you want to play around with it. I know we have Windows users out there in that audience, Wes. Yeah, <clears throat> you're stuck. Maybe you don't want to run a VM. You don't need a VM. Hey, now you've got a custom tailored distribution. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so good work, Hayden. I hope it keeps up. I know some people have been a little like, what is this? But I say good on you. And I'm curious to see where the project goes in the future. Any hints where we're going after this? What's next? So we're looking right now, after we get the onboarding experience done, uh, we're looking at internationalization. Uh, WLinux is uh, unexpectedly popular in China and Japan. Huh. Uh, you know, took me completely by surprise. So we're adding in foreign language support as quickly as possible. And then we're going to be adding ARM64 support uh, to support Windows on ARM devices. <laughs> I love it. That's interesting. Well, do keep us informed on how it goes. Keep us up to date. I'll, I'd love to follow the progress of things. And you're welcome back anytime to, to update us on any major developments. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. You bet. Well, let's do something that uh, we should do a lot more of, to be honest with you. And that's read folks' emails and follow-ups and all those kinds of things. Uh, how about I take this first one here, Wes? Because uh, uh, John writes in to address you. So I'll read this one here. He says, I took note of uh, Wes mentioning a possible root on ZFS setup for his new ThinkPad. I would definitely recommend giving this a shot. I don't know what distro you plan on using, but in the past few years, I've been using nothing but root on ZFS on Arch with binary updates. Uh, and he points you out to, uh, there's an Arch ZFS GitHub page. But he says, I also wasn't quite happy with the way Linux supported boot environments, which is a nice feature when you use it ZFS. It really is, yeah. So, and you could really dig this, I think. So he wrote his own. He calls it ZD environment and or Z environment. ZM. And he, he links to it in the email. And he says, it removes the worry of kernel updates or system changes causing issues since you can create a new boot environment and you make your changes there. If you happen to give root on ZFS a shot and are looking for a boot environment client, please take a look at it and best of luck with your new computer. John, that is awesome. I'm also really just thinking I'm, I'm going to double down on this root on ZFS, maybe also encrypt it. So oh. we'll have more to talk about in that arena yeah, soon. That could be fun. Uh, so Omkar writes in and he says he loves the show. In fact, he also seems to be a TechSnap fan because he says, I find Wes knowledgeable and the way he play, explains stuff on TechSnap and Linux Unplugged is fascinating. Well, thanks. That's really nice. Much he's, appreciated. He says he's got a few questions for us. Uh, what kind of hardware setup have you configured for Proc Proxmox? VE and which which version of Proxmox? Oh man, that's a you question, Chris. Ooh, I'm it's, a, it's, a, you. it's a three year old install, or maybe even four years old now. So that would be well, I, I couldn't tell you what version that is. That's a pretty old install. I maybe I could bring in our IT guy. Maybe he could tell me. Uh, hey, Brown Bear, could you come in here for a second? I got a question for you. Hello. Hey, Brown Bear, do you remember what version of Proxmox we're running on that i7 rig in the Garage? Well, I've got good and bad news for you. Which would you like first? Well, okay, let's let's start with the bad news, because I think I know where you're going. The bad news is you're no longer running Proxmox yeah. in the i7 in the Garage. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Is that It's running now CentOS, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Alan and I set up CentOS, and then we put, uh, or actually we installed libvirt-d and uh, set it up just like Red Hat would as a, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a KVM uh, hypervisor kind of a deal. <laughs> and that's actually been working really good, I <laughs> to tell you the truth. It's been really solid. Proxmox was great, though, but uh, things, times have really changed. The options have changed. 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever been a Proxmox uh, user, no, but I know that you know, you're big on the CentOS virtualization stuff. So yeah, I have. In fact, I've gotten crap on 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 the Ask Noah show for not giving enough uh, you know good juju to uh, to Proxmox because it really is a fantastic project. They really do some really great work, and if you want an enterprise grade virtualization system that has a really fantastic UI, man, Proxmox is really the way to go. Yeah, it's just when you start looking into things like I want the ability to uh, you know have a BSD server that's on here, and then when I go back to Grand Forks, I want that BSD server to fall over to my virtualized host in Grand Forks, and if I come back here, I want it to go back over here, and those kinds of things. It's really nice to have something a little bit uh, that is know, nice. meteor. That does sound really cool. Okay, so uh, Omkar's next question was, uh, what droplet specs do you guys recommend for a GitLab and a PeerTube instance? Well, those are two tough questions. So GitLab, you'd probably be okay with the $20 a month or less droplets. GitLab's not going to be, it just depends on how busy you are. It depends on what you do with it, I guess. There's a lot of extended features, but if you're just dumping some commits to it, probably minimal. Um, Now, PeerTube, here's what's tricky about PeerTube, is if you think about it, you're kind of re-implementing what YouTube does. And there is a transcoding process that PeerTube goes through when you upload a video. And the speed of your droplet is going to directly impact how long it takes for those videos to be available on PeerTube. If you don't care, if you just want some place to throw up videos and you don't care if it takes an hour for the video to be available, then you really could get away with a $5 a month droplet because you're not using much CPU because the decoding is happening on client side for the video and the, and the bandwidth is still fast regardless of which machine you get. And then... He asked a question that I'm going to punt to you, Wes. He asked if either of us have ever tried out Traffic, which I'm, I think is how you pronounce it. It's spelled T-R-A-E-F-I-K. And it, for those of you that don't know, I didn't. It is a what they call cloud-native edge router. It's a reverse proxy and a load balancer that's easy, dynamic, automatic, and open source. So it seems like it's pretty cool. Have you ever heard of Traffic or Traffic, Wes? Yeah, so it, you can front, basically, if you're running a bunch of stuff on your fancy Kubernetes clusters, you can put this in front of it, and it will auto-discover. It'll talk to Kubernetes it'll, or Swarm or some other technologies. Oh, cool. Find what services you're running, connect to them, and integrate with metrics. It can do HTTPS at the front. Also ties in with some of those open tracing systems. You can get logs and sort of analyze how a request flows through all of your services. Yeah, it's a nice-looking web UI to manage this. This is icy. I see. So it ties in basically with the different orchestration APIs and then automatically configures the reverse proxy, attaches statistics using open source projects, and you're good to go. Yeah. So there's a lot to like there, but if you're not using like some sort of orchestration software, it's probably not necessarily what you use. Maybe something just like, well, Envoy might work or just Nginx even. There's a lot of solutions that won't have all those fancy features, but if you don't need them, if you just have two apps that are running on two different droplets, well, you're probably fine. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Thanks for the uh, emails. We got a bunch of others. Some of them, which were eight or nine paragraphs long, read them all, but can't cover them all on the show. They got to be a certain length. And we would love to get your feedback, your questions, your suggestions for the show. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. And links for anything we talked about today, LinuxUnplugged slash 268. So, Mr. Noah Chalaya, what are you doing in this uh, part of the woods? Are you just coming out here to hang out for the barbecue? Dude, I am always here for just the food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really? so I, I mean, I say nice things like I came here for your stunning personality and I wanted to hang out and stuff, but really... It's the barbecue. How many minutes was it that you walked into the door? I think it couldn't have been more than five minutes. We were already packing up to go to lunch when you got here. Yeah, you know, I I really had a suspicion. I mean, here's the thing. We can talk about food. I'm not saying that we can't. But I feel like you had an agenda before I ever came here. Before I ever set foot in the door, I just, I felt like it was your premise to take me to Indian food. And that 
that decision process had been made before I ever entered the premises. Yeah, you're welcome. You're, is that your way of saying thank you? Is that? Yeah, it's a, that's a long-winded <laughs> way of saying you're, you're So what are you doing no, over there? Getting ready for the Ask Noah program? I am, yeah. If I'm sure you guys have heard, Google has been making some weird decisions, forcing people to log in, and we're going to ask the audience if they think this enhances their experience using Chrome or if this time Google has gone too far. If they've taken privacy and thrown it out the windows, Google tends to do. We got a number of other exciting stories that we're going to get to um, Project Triton has adopted a code of conduct, so we're going to talk about that, a little bit of follow-up to last week's episode. Chrome OS 71 has launched. Now Linux apps are available on non-Pixel devices, also the ability it's to here. share files with Linux. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So we're going to talk about all those things, and then towards the end of the show, if we have time, because this is like the least important thing in the world, but Microsoft has launched the ability to have multi-user virtualization on Windows. We're going to explain how that can be leveraged huh. to... In an, in an all-Linux environment, if you're just virtualizing Windows, if you want to be Linux on the hardware, Windows in a virtual environment, how this is actually going to benefit your Linux environment. Huh. It's for people who like to mess with computers. That's right, Leo. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I say I just was making this joke earlier in the show. I look at the stats and, you know, I'd say there's 30%. Nah, well, yeah, it might be around 30%-ish. Somewhere in that ballpark of the people that download the show are on Windows. It's somewhere. Oh, really? in that, yeah, it's somewhere in that area. And we love you too, guys. Yeah, so we appreciate it. Uh, you know, <laughs> maybe they're just checking us out before they make the big switch. You know, they're that looking might... for all the guides and the know-how. Yeah, you know, I look at Which my distros are hip. I look at myself as Jesus Chris. Jesus, you know, wow. he, wouldn't, he wouldn't go into the places where everybody had become wow, a follower like the because there's not <laughs> uh, there's not a lot there's not a lot to be done there. So I need to be in the homes of the sinners so you know, that I can bring them to the wonderful this, world. This is really just falling apart as you keep going. My Lord and Savior, Lenny Storvold. <laughs> Jeez. This really explains a few things, actually. This worldview now explains a few things. I understand you a little better now. <laughs> Dude, uh, there, are, there are memes going on. I, apparently, I said one time on, on an episode, I, I said that the Linux was a religion. I was just going to give in. And so I just started calling myself the Pope. <laughs> and uh, now it's become memes. Well, yeah, yeah, Pope might not be too I've, far I've, off the mark. I've been memified. Well, now that uh, I'm sure we've enraged somebody, uh, we should probably uh, wrap this thing up. Hey, go get more of Martin Wimpress over at the Ubuntu podcast. You know, go get more of them. Great show. Not, not, not just me, but also Mark. Everyone remember, Mark is not Martin or Alan or Popey or Wimpy. He's Mark. Mark. Mark is one third of the Ubuntu podcast. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he 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 visits for, on occasion. Uh, so that's why he doesn't get probably the mention as often because, you know, you're right here front and center. Uh, and But it, it is a great trio at that. And also, go check out Cassidy James's work. Uh, it'll, the Medium post that we chatted about earlier will be linked in the show notes. And uh, stick around. we got the post show coming up. And then af right after that on the live stream is the Ask Knower program, which uh, will be live taking your calls. So we might talk about some of the same topics, but you actually get to chime in via the phone. You don't even have to bother installing Mumble. Wes Payne's available all the time online. You can just hunt him down. He's at Wes Payne. That's right. And then he's on the uh, TechSnap program. New show just launched. Actually, I kid. It's not a new show. It's been around for a while. But it's coming out new all the time. It's pretty great. And you've uh, we just had John the Nice Guy on yeah, the show last episode. week. You should go check it out. He's got, some, he's got some hot tips. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you want to dive a little deeper into inter interplanetary file system. All of that is over at TechSnap.Systems. All right. That's all hey. the... Yeah, what, what? Yeah, yeah, John Spriggs on. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Wow, right? I, I've been away too long. Yeah. John is John is not just John the nice guy Spriggs. John is a super nice guy. He is. He really is. Yeah, yeah. He's the organizer of Op Camp. I know. I know. I've been wanting to have him on the show 
forever. So go check it out, techsnap.systems. All our links, Linux Unplugged.com. I'm at Chris LES. Thanks for joining us. See you next Tuesday. Wimpy's brain. I don't know exactly what the right way to ask this question is, Wimpy, but is there a way to tell what the difference would be in terms of like patches or or additions to Ubuntu's 18.10 GNOME versus, say, stock GNOME? So like, is there a way to actually detail like patch sets that might be better for performance? I'm trying to think about how to review uh, the new distro releases and performance of the GNOME desktop is something I think I kind of want to take a look at, but I'm not quite sure how to tell differences uh, in terms of patch sets that have been applied for performance. Yes. So if you want to see what patches are being applied to what is, you know, the upstream version of GNOME shell and the patches that are being carried in Ubuntu, what will become 18.10, then yes, you can see all of that in Launchpad because all of that Debian packaging that happens happens in Launchpad and you can see those those patches directly. What I would say is that I know that uh, Daniel Van Vogt, who's uh, part of the Ubuntu desktop team, all of the patches that we're carrying as, a, as vendor patches right now have been submitted upstream and are in various stages of review and will eventually percolate into you know the upstream gnome project but whilst they're being negotiated we're carrying the patches that he's been working on